Last Sunday morning, we looked at how the Holy Spirit will guide the disciples and all believers into all the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how the Holy Spirit will glorify the Lord Jesus through revelation and illumination. In the next section, Jesus describes how his disciples will be grieved, how they will be filled with additional sorrow, because we know that they were already sorrowful as they were considering the fact that he's going to die and leave, but they are going to literally be more sorrowful and grieved by his death on the cross, and yet how their sorrow will be turned into joy. In fact, that's the title of this sermon. It's Sorrow to Joy. I'm going to be giving you five Ps today. That's how we're going to look at the text, five Ps. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, firstly, we want to acknowledge your absolute awesomeness and your holiness and your purity, your love, your mercy, just you are truly beyond the words that we can come up with to describe you. You are vast, immeasurable, infinite. And this humbles us because we are none of that. We are feeble and finite. And um, we are broken. And so we humbly ask for your help today, Lord, as we study your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit who has been sent and who has come and is, who, who is in every believer and who is in this place now, we pray that he would help us, that he would open our ears and hearts and minds to the truth of Scripture, that he would sanctify the saints, make them a little bit more like Christ today as he chips away the things that need to go as he fills us with your love and grace, and that he would save those who do not yet know you in a saving way. Lord, we pray that you would speak through this text and that you would change us and transform us. Lord, we know that without the work of the Holy Spirit, this will be nothing more than a lecture. And so we pray for his work in our hearts today, in our minds today. And we pray for the ultimate goal and purpose of this sermon and every sermon and everything that exists, that it would bring you glory, that you would be glorified here, that your heart would be warmed by our gratitude and attention. We want to worship you now. And so we give you this time and commit it to you and ask for your help. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The first P, number one, the prediction. And by the way, we're looking at John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. John 16, 16 through 24, that is the next section. The prediction we see actually in verse 16, this is the next set of things that Jesus says to his disciples as they're walking. Verse 16 says, A little while, and you will see me no longer... And again, a little while, and you will see me. This is what Jesus says to them right after he gets done describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And basically what Jesus is doing here is he's doing what he's been doing the whole time that he was on earth preaching the gospel and, 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 and doing his ministry. What he's basically doing in effect here is he's just predicting his death once more, which will literally occur in a little while, probably 10, 12 hours, maybe 14 hours at most. His death on the cross is the reason why his disciples will see him no longer and experience the sorrow that he talks about in this text. And yet he also predicts his return and the restoration of their joy, which will also occur in a little while. Now, some theologians, and there's great debate and discussion on this text, it's a little perplexing, I think, but some theologians think that Jesus was obviously pointing to his death on the cross, that would be the moment of sorrow, and then he was also pointing to his resurrection that occurred three days later, and that would be the moment their joy would be restored. That's what they think a little while means. But there's difficulty with this interpretation because of what we see in verse 20b and verse 24b. Those two verses, or half verses, describe an enduring everlasting, perpetual joy, the kind of joy that will never be lost, the kind of joy that can only be experienced in the continuous presence of God, Psalm 1611. In God's presence, there is joy forevermore and pleasures forevermore. So how can the disciples Joy be enduring and everlasting when Jesus is going to physically leave them again at his ascension 43 days later. If these theologians who have come up with this kind of answer to this verse here, if they are correct, the disciples' joy will be restored on Easter Sunday and then potentially lost at the ascension when Jesus physically leaves them again. That's at least how my logic works works when I consider their point of view, Jesus could not have been referring to the resurrection alone here. In other words, he, he wasn't telling them that, look, your joy is going to be restored only at the resurrection. He's referring to something broader than that, something bigger than that. In other words, there's more to it. Other theologians suggest that Jesus was pointing to his glorious return, what we call the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Well, he could not have been pointing to the second advent because it did not occur a little while after his death. <laughs> did it? 2,000 years have transpired and he still has not come back. That's dramatically more than a little while. So I don't know how they come up with this synopsis. I believe what Jesus is pointing to here, he's pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the day in which the Holy Spirit descended and came upon the church. To me, that's the only explanation. That did occur a little while after his crucifixion and death, 53 days later to be precise. And MacArthur agrees with me. Gave him a call and said, what do you think? He said, yes, put that in my commentary for me. Said, you got it, brother. 
He wrote this, he says, It seems most accurate to view the Lord's promise that he would see the disciples again primarily as a reference to the coming of his spirit on the day of Pentecost. After accomplishing the work of redemption and ascending to heaven, Jesus sent his spirit to be with the disciples. Christ came to them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of Christ and reveals Christ. I think that's a great commentary on what, on what it means here, what Jesus is intending for us to understand. So when the Lord Jesus says, in a little while you will see me no longer, he is obviously referring to his death on the cross. And when he says, again, in a little while you will see me, he is referring primarily to the day in which the Holy Spirit will come to manifest his presence, this presence of the Lord Jesus, to his disciples, and that is Pentecost. Now, what has Jesus been talking about over and over and over in this text? What is the context? He's been presenting the ministry of the Holy Spirit and primarily pointing in every conceivable way to the day in which the Holy Spirit would come. So I think this interpretation makes the most sense. This is the prediction here in verse 16. Now we can look at the second P. Number two, the puzzlement. (laughs) You know who I'm referring to, right? Jesus wasn't puzzled about anything. The disciples were puzzled. We see this in verses 17 to 18. Look at what it says. It says, So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again in a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. And it says in verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. (laughs) This is 11 men walking with him, right? Judas Iscariot's already gone. This is the other 11, and they're walking with him, and they've been listening to him all night. Ever since he started washing their feet back in the upper room, that's the whole discourse, right? And they are sitting here scratching their heads trying to figure out what he means by this little while. And they're discussing it among themselves. This is actually the first time we see the disciples speak in a little while. The last time we see them saying anything to Jesus was back in chapter 14, verse 22. We're two chapters later. They had not said anything for two chapters. And here they're perplexed or confused, puzzled by Jesus' little while statement, and now they speak up for the first time in two entire chapters. Back in 1422, it was Judas, not Iscariot, another man named Judas, not the, not the son of perdition, the, the demonic one. It was a, a legitimate disciple. He was questioning, back in 14, he's questioning Jesus about, Jesus, why are you manifesting yourself, making yourself known only to this group of 11 and not to the entire world? What are you thinking? You're blowing a ministry opportunity. And of course, Jesus corrects him. That's the last time we see anyone of the disciples say anything to Christ. They remain silent for a while. Now, this saying that he did was just, it just puzzled them. And it certainly didn't help that they were already overcome with sorrow because of the persecution and martyrdom Jesus said they will face in the future, right? Back in chapter 16, verse 2, and because of the fact that Jesus was leaving them, right? We saw that 
in chapter 14, verse 1, and in 16, 12, we saw the sorrow, their sorrowful response to Jesus' prediction that he's leaving. So, so they're already upset. They're already tremendously saddened by the fact that they've been with Jesus for three years. They're about to lose, in their minds, they're about to lose their Savior's physical presence, and they are going to lose it in a sense, and they're just they're blown out over this. And then to be perplexed by something he says, to be puzzled, it just doesn't help. Reminds me of myself sometimes where I'm in a scenario with, with someone who's going through something and they're, and they're puzzled and they don't know what to make of the scenario, the situation, the loss or whatever. And, and here I come, I'm supposed to be an encouragement and then I say things that further puzzle them. You ever done that? They walk out of there going, I have no idea what to do now because he just unpacked all the doctrines of grace on me, and I don't, even know, I don't even know what a doctrine of grace is. Remember last week we talked about this. When you go into a situation, you're there to be a, a gospel witness, but sometimes the best way to witness is just to listen and to be there and to pray with them. And, and, and if you can point to the work of Christ, great, but man, you're not there just to unpack all the doctrines and, hey, you know, back in eternity past, God set this thing up for you. That person's going, huh? Or one of my favorites, you know, this is part of God's plan. Really? For some people, they can't, I mean, I'm a Christian. I can barely get my mind around how most things fit into God's plan. And yet, this is the best we can do when we show up. And I, I know our intention's right. We're not trying to blow them out. But we do tend to puzzle people rather than help them. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Jesus abstained from further describing to them future events. Their hearts couldn't bear anymore. It was TMI. Too much. I'll, I'll say TMI. T-I, too much theological information. But we have to ask the question, what was so puzzling about Jesus' statement in verse 16? I mean, it doesn't look very puzzling to me. Does it look puzzling to you? I mean, you're going to leave, and that's going to stink, and we're going to be filled with sorrow, and then you're going to come back, and we're going to have joy. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Well... There isn't anything puzzling about it to us, to those who are in Christ. But if you had an ancient Jewish mindset like the disciples had, it would be very puzzling to you. They were trying, always trying to squeeze the Lord Jesus into their kingdom theology, their their way of understanding, the way, of kingdom, the, 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 way the kingdom of God works. And, and when they couldn't make Jesus fit because of the things Jesus said, it puzzled them. Sometimes our, our puzzlement is because we have preconceived notions about truth. It's not the truth that's puzzling us. It's what we perceive about it or what we already believe about it. And then when the plain word of God comes to us, we go, I don't get it. Why? Because it doesn't fit into your theology. It doesn't fit into your worldview. It doesn't fit into what you understand or believe. That's most of the time our issue. And that is their issue here. 
when, they, when Jesus said a little while twice, they're going, what? That doesn't fit into our scheme. Not seeing him and then seeing him made no sense to them because they believe that when Israel's Messiah comes, he will establish an everlasting kingdom, throne and reign, and never leave. That, that's their perspective. That's the Jewish view. They don't see the Messiah coming once and dying and then returning in glory. They see him coming and ruling and reigning, and that's it. That's the Jewish mindset today. This is why they won't, one of the reasons why they won't accept Christ. He doesn't fit into our theology. And that's what's going on here with these guys. You're saying you're going to leave and you're going to come back. Well, if you came to establish your kingdom, why are you leaving? If you didn't come to establish your kingdom, why are you coming back? That's what they're thinking. To see these guys were always trying to put Jesus into their little Judaistic theological boxes. And when he said something that totally contradicted their beliefs, they became puzzled and even belligerent at times. It's not just that they couldn't get their mind around it. Sometimes they rebuked the Lord. They rebuked the King of Kings. It can't be that way, Jesus, what you're telling us. And when Jesus speaks, it's straight revelation. You remember the time Peter couldn't get his mind around how Jesus was determined to go to, to Jerusalem so he could die and, and so he could suffer, die, and rise in three days? And, and Peter tells him, Jesus, let it not be. I'm not going to let you go do that. You can't go and do that. And, and what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, right? Matthew 16, 22 to 23. It's not just that they were puzzled by what Jesus said at times. Sometimes they responded belligerently and rebuked the Lord of lords. <laughs> now, Jesus is incredible to me in, in so many ways. And when I study the word, I just it just... I love him so much more because of the way he responds in these kinds of situations. He never does what I would do. You guys are morons. That's me. He never does that. He, he doesn't even think that way. Well, maybe he does. I think he thought of somebody as an imbecile at one time, or maybe that was the Apostle Paul. That sounds like Paul. But in any case... Just the way he responds. He literally hears them discussing this. He knows that they're puzzled. He knows they can't get their mind around what he just said because he knows that he doesn't fit into their Judaistic theological boxes. And he knows that they wanted to somehow come to an understanding of what he was saying, but he knew that they couldn't arrive there on, his own, on their own. They would have just kept talking about this over and over and over, saying, I don't know. I don't know, Judas, not Iscariot. What do you think? Well, I don't know, Peter. Well, I don't know, John. I don't know, James. I can't get my mind around it. What do you think, Matthew? I don't know. I'm thinking about going back to tax collecting. So let's look at the third P, right? Number three, the perception. This is the perception of Jesus, verses 19 through 20. Look at, look at the statement. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. See, nobody was, everyone was discussing this, but nobody would step up and ask Jesus, because this is a matter of pride here. Well, we don't want to reveal our cards to him. 
that we don't understand it, that we're a bunch of dummies. Nobody was going to straight go to Jesus and ask, but Jesus knows they want to. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, and look at this question, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Is this what you guys are talking about? He's not asking them because he's not sure. He knows that's what they're talking about. You want to understand what I said right there? That's what he's saying to them. In verse 20, look at the double emphatic, truly, truly, every time we see that, that means what Jesus is about to say is of higher importance. Not that he said things that were not important or not highly important, but when he says truly, truly, he's saying, you better listen up. This is something you need to get. I think in, in, in my mind, what he's saying is, we're not going to be talking about this anymore tonight, so listen to me. There are other things we need to talk about. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So in verse 19, Jesus questions them, are you wanting to know what I meant? In verse 20, he basically restates what he said in verse 16. He just further articulates it. And again, pay attention to that double truly, truly, truly. We know what that signifies, something of high importance here. When Jesus dies on the cross, his disciples will be filled with sorrow. And they're already full of sorrow now, so this is just going to amplify the sorrow. And they're going to, as Jesus describes, now keep in mind, this is a prophecy. Jesus is predicting how they're going to respond. So these are prophetic words. They are going to be sorrowful, and they are going to weep and lament. They're going to cry. They're going to be upset. And yet Jesus says, that will be you but the world will rejoice. Why will it rejoice? Because it will think it is victorious. See, the world hated Jesus. It rejected Jesus. It crucified and killed Jesus, thinking that by doing that, it would be victorious over Jesus. Now, he's gone. We've gotten rid of our problem. We can just live how we want and do what we want and keep our religion and keep all this stuff going. Jesus is telling you, you guys are going to be weeping and lamenting, and yet at the same time that you're weeping and lamenting, the world is going to be rejoicing over my death because it thinks it was victorious over me. That particular celebration by the world, however, was short-lived. They got to party for three days, didn't they? Because what happened in three days? Jesus rose from the grave he came out of the tomb. He rose on Easter Sunday just within three days of, of Good Friday when he was crucified and killed. And his rising from the dead, his resurrection literally undid the works of Satan and the works of the world against him. He, at that moment when he rises from the grave, he overcomes the world. Just drop down to verse 33 in this text. He overcomes the world through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. By rising, Jesus proves that he is victorious, not the world. The world lost. Satan lost. 
The head of the serpent was crushed in that moment. And like sore losers, representatives of the world, the religious leaders, primarily the chief priests and the elders, immediately concocted a phony baloney story saying that the disciples had come in the middle of the night and stole Jesus' body. And they even bribed the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb. They bribed them with money and gave them this story and say, now you guys, here's, here's, here's a thousand bucks. Now you guys are to tell anyone and everyone that Jesus' disciples came and somehow stole the body while you guys were taking a nap or while you guys had your head turned. Now keep in mind, this tomb was sealed with an official Roman seal. It had a wax seal all the way around between the rock that was rolled in front of it and the, the cave itself. It was marked with the, the marking of Caesar, which means if you tampered with that, it was way worse than tampering with anything from our federal or state government. And they had Roman armed Roman guards in front of it. And somehow, in three days, well, we know how, right? The power of God raises him. He's out of the tomb. The guards are scratching their heads. And now this, these religious leaders come to them with this story and say, hey, let's just say he got stolen. Here's some money. Go along with it, guys. Well, you can read about that in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 14. And you know what is nuts? This story about Jesus' body being stolen is still being perpetuated today by Jews. They're sticking to this story. If you ask any Orthodox Jew, I don't know if you have any relationship with anyone, but you talk about Jesus, oh, you mean the one they stole the body in the middle of the night? They're still telling everyone about this. That's what they believe. And yet, and yet, when the disciples, right, sorrow, he dies. When the disciples see the risen Lord Jesus on Easter Sunday, what's going to happen? What does Jesus prophesy? Their sorrow will turn to joy. John 20, verse 20. But like I said, it can't, that can't be the only way to interpret this. Yeah, they're going to be joyful when they see him risen during the day of his resurrection. But remember, we're also pointing to the day of Pentecost here. And when the Holy Spirit comes in a little while, right, that's what the text says, 50 days later on Pentecost, their joy will become enduring and everlasting because A, the Holy Spirit will manifest the, the spiritual presence of the Lord Jesus to them. Remember, we talked about that, chapter 14, verse 18. B, the Holy Spirit will lead them into all the truth and remind them of everything the Lord Jesus said about his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return. Chapter 14, verse 26, chapter 16, verse 13, and C, the Holy Spirit will never, ever leave them. Chapter 14, verse 16. Let me just present it to you this way. What produces joy in the hearts of God's people, in the hearts of true disciples, in the hearts of, of Christians, in the hearts of believers? What gives us joy? It is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. He manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ to us and in us. He leads us into all the truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. He not only unpacks that truth for us through Scripture, He illuminates us and helps us get our minds around it. He also reminds us of what the Lord Jesus did for us, right? His person and work. 
Well, he lived for our righteousness. He died to pay for our sins. He was buried to settle our account. He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, hell, the world for us. The Holy Spirit, how do we have joy? Those things, plus the Holy Spirit is in us and will never leave us. The inevitable result of the Holy Spirit's inner presence and supernatural work in our lives is enduring, everlasting joy. I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell them. It's not what he's trying to tell them. It's what he's telling them. In verse 21, Jesus gives his disciples a vivid example of an event that initially causes pain, but ultimately brings joy. Let's look at the fourth P. Number four, the parable. Verses 21 through 22. Jesus is is just simply the greatest preacher and greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. When when people couldn't understand, he followed it with illustrations and things that, that were meant to help them or meant to not help them depending on the context. And here he, he just gives this, this, he just describes this vivid example that just drives what he's saying home. Listen to what he says in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. How many of you are moms? Did you have a bit of sorrow when you were in the process of giving birth? Look, I got two hands up by Valerie in the back. She's like, oh, he's preaching finally. (laughs) Praise the Lord, it hurt. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. And look what he says in verse 22. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is so amazing. I'm I'm like, with my feeble mind, I actually understand what he's saying here. And and, and the 11 didn't. (laughs) Maybe it's because we have the Holy Spirit, and they didn't have him in the same way that we do now. That's the only explanation. It's not because Phil's extra smarter. (laughs) I'm not smarter. I'm dumb and dumber. This is just so plain. Isn't it plain? Well, it's plain because we have the Spirit. He's making it plain to us. The parable Jesus uses here is about childbirth. During childbirth, an expecting mother usually experiences much sorrow because of intense pain. And by the way, that's part of the curse of Genesis 3. In child labor, you will have much pain. But once once that baby is born and placed into her arms, what does she do? It still hurts. No, I've never even heard of one doing that. Even though her body's still jacked up. No, she quickly forgets about the pain. She quickly forgets about the anguish that she just went through. 
But literally, once she's holding her baby and, that, and that, that, part of, that part of that journey is over, man, her sorrow just very, very quickly turns to joy because her little one has entered into the world. And Jesus, like a perfect parent, like a loving mother even, gives them this illustration Jesus tells his disciples that they will experience something similar when he dies, when he rises, and when the Holy Spirit comes. You guys are going to be devastated when I die on the cross, but on Easter Sunday, you're going to have some joy because you're going to see me again. But let me tell you something, fellas. When the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, your joy is going to be enduring and everlasting. It's never going to leave you because he's never going to leave you. Now just consider what these men are about to go through. Being kicked out of the synagogues, disconnected from all Jewish social life, and even killed. And yet joy. MacArthur put it like this. This is another insight I gave him. The dark shadows of sorrow and grief cast by the cross shall flee before the brilliant, glorious light of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Man, that's what we're talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Mm. Now we need to look at number five, the fifth P. This is the promise This is the promise, verses 23 and 24, the rest of our text. Listen to what Jesus says after describing to them, giving them this parable and describing how it's paralleled with their own experience. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Again, another double truly. Pay attention, disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Well, again, what is Jesus pointing to here? He's he's pointing to the day the Holy Spirit would come. The day of perpetual joy, right? Pentecost. He literally points to the day the Holy Spirit comes, will come, and he describes what will happen soon after. That's what he's doing. After the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples will no longer be puzzled by Jesus' teachings and, and asking what he meant by this or that because the Holy Spirit will do what? Guide them into all the truth. Verse 13. Does this mean that they'll have a perfect understanding of precisely who Jesus is and what he did? Yeah, in a way they will in terms of the gospel. They're not going to understand every facet of everything, but they will have a a fuller knowledge and a, a, a solid understanding of what Christ actually did through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his perfect living I love verse 23. It says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. 
When the Holy Spirit comes and begins to teach you and remind you of everything I said, he's not going to just teach you. He's going to illuminate you so that you're not perplexed about what I said any longer. You will actually understand it. And what happens when we come to an understanding of the truth? What follows? Joy. Joy follows. MacArthur once more, actually I think I probably have another one from him. His stuff was just so good on this chapter, I got to keep going to him. He says this, the disciples would at long last understand why Jesus had to die. His relationship with the Father would be clarified and they would realize why it was to their advantage for him to go away and send the Holy Spirit. All of this clarification of the cross and resurrection by the Holy Spirit is contained in the rest of the inspired New Testament, in which some of these men were part of the recording process. Rather than, when the Holy Spirit comes, the the disciples, rather than being puzzled all the time by Jesus' teachings and these things, what are they going to do? They're not going to be puzzled about those fundamental teachings any longer. They're going to become prayerful. And they're not going to be praying prayers of, I didn't understand what you meant back in the, in the upper room. I understand that now. They're going to be praying, but they're going to be praying not about their own understanding. Because the Holy Spirit is going to lead them into all truth. They will literally begin to pray in Jesus' name for the very first time. They didn't pray in Jesus' name while they were physically with him, right? Verse 24a, they, like Jesus, simply prayed to the Father without any mention of Jesus' name. What does Jesus say? Father, I pray that you would do this in my name. (laughs) That's an interesting dynamic. Jesus is with them. And they didn't pray in Jesus' name yet. They just prayed as Jesus prayed. In fact, Jesus had to teach them to pray. You just look at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. You don't see anything at the end of that saying, in my name, in Jesus' name. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes, they will begin to pray in Jesus' name just as he instructed them to do, right? Back in chapter 14, verse 13. This is where he teaches them to do that. When you men pray, you are to pray in my name. And when they pray... In Jesus' name, what? Jesus truly, truly promises that they will receive what they ask for, that their joy may be full, 24B. Now we need, we need to reiterate, we've talked about this, but we've got to do it again here. We need to reiterate what it actually means to pray in Jesus' name. This is imperative because people literally believe, well, I can pray for anything, and if I hang Jesus' name on the end of it, it's going to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. I wish it were that simple. And that's because I live by the flesh most days, unfortunately. I'm praying that I, I, I walk in the Spirit more. You can really tell where a person is in their walk by how they pray. What do they pray for? How do they pray? How do they end their prayers? Our prayers reveal a lot about our maturity or lack thereof. It is 
Jesus is not promoting the idea of just hanging his name on the end of our prayers. Father, please give me a Cadillac Escalade in Jesus' name. You know what's going to happen? If you pray like that, you're going to end up with a 75 Ford Pinto. Don't do it. I'm making a laughable matter, but in some ways it's just so dishonoring to him to be so selfish in our prayers. Now, he's not referring to just, 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 tag my, just tap my name on the end of it. Just tag my name on the end of it, and you're good to go. Now, praying in Jesus' name has to do with praying in accordance with who Jesus is, with what Jesus has done, and with what Jesus is doing in the world today. It has to do with praying in a way that honors his worth, his person and worth, honors his work, and honors his will. If we pray in this manner, the Father will grant our requests and our hearts will fill with joy. An answered prayer not only brings joy to the one who's praying, but it brings joy to to anyone and everyone else that's in Christ that you describe what happened to, right? I mean, I've, I've had saints come to me and say, you know, I've been praying, and, and they were praying rightly, right, in a way that honors the Lord and is in accordance with his will. And, and they say, wow, man, you should see what Jesus did, how he answered that prayer. That not only fills them with joy, it fills me with joy to hear about how the Lord Jesus is answering his people's prayers because they're praying right. Joy, just, it, just, it just comes out and just, it just goes into everyone that's there if they're in the Lord. Let me, let me give you a, a, a pretty solid example of, of how to pray in Jesus' name. Maybe, maybe what we need here, I certainly need it, is we need a little bit of a, the rubber on the road kind of example here. What, what exactly does that look like to pray in his name? I already told you it's not give me a Cadillac Escalade in Jesus' name. Give, give, me, give me health in Jesus' name. Give me prosperity in Jesus' name. You know, save me from my poor decisions in Jesus' name. Now, here's an example for you. Let's, let's just put together a little scenario. Let's say that we, we're, we're intending to go out and, and, and share the gospel with others. Maybe we're going to do that. At, maybe it's not some event we're a part of. It's not some evangelistic event, but maybe, maybe, maybe it is. But maybe it isn't, but maybe we're just intending on Tuesday while I'm at work at Merced Chevrolet, Tom, I have made it a point to share the gospel with somebody there. In fact, I know who it is. It's Frank. I've been interacting with Frank, and man, I know Frank needs Jesus, so, right? Let's just, let's just that's the scenario. You, you're intending to go discuss with somebody or describe to someone the, the, the perfect life of Jesus, the, the perfect death of Jesus, the, the burial and the perfect resurrection. Let's just say that's your, that's your MO, that's what you want to do. And here's, here's how you pray, right, before you even go do that. Because if you, if you don't pray before you do it, good luck with the fruit. Because Jesus told his disciples that you will be fruitful, but he tied prayer to the fruitfulness. So let's say you decide, I'm going I'm to share the gospel with Frank today. Uh, maybe there's some Franks in here, or we know some Franks. How about Benny? I don't, we don't know any Bennies. So we're going to share the gospel with Benny. He's a, apparently a mobster, I guess. I've never even heard that name. But we're going to preach the gospel to him. We want to share the gospel with him, right? And we pray. And here's what we ask the Father for, right? 
We come to the Father humbly. We acknowledge who He is because we're supposed to pray to the Father. And we pray to Him and we ask Him for wisdom. You know, when we humble ourselves and we come to the Father and ask Him for wisdom, we're emulating Solomon when he was actually, a, when he was actually gospel-centered before he went way down with all the wives and everything. He really did go astray. But when he could have prayed for anything, when he begins his, his, his rule as king, he prays for wisdom and God grants it. We need wisdom if we're going to share the gospel. Wisdom for how to respond to their objections or to the issues or whatever. We need wisdom. So, so we're going to go share the gospel with Benny, and, and, and we come to the Father before, and we say, Father, would you please give, here's what I want to do. Would you please give me wisdom? Would you please give me clarity, gospel clarity that I would, that I would understand in those moments? I'm prone to not understanding sometimes or even jumbling my words, but would you give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech during this time? Would you give me, Father, please would you give me, Father, patience? Because most of the time when you share the gospel with people, you need a lot of patience, man. And you, you pray for wisdom and, and you pray for clarity and you play, pray for patience. And guess what else you pray for? You pray for fruit. And then you say, in your glorious Son's name, in the name of Jesus, I pray. There it is. And if we pray like that, He will surely grant us the things that we are asking for. He will give you wisdom. He will give you clarity. He will give you the patience you need. It'll run out shortly after because patience is earned. He will make that time fruitful. That doesn't ensure that he will absolutely save that person in that moment, but maybe he predestined to do so. But it will be fruitful for you. It'll be fruitful for you. And yet, if we ask the Father for things that in no way glorify the Son, and I'm always amazed at how we can twist things to somehow do that. Right? I, Father, I, I really want this expensive car, and, and, and here's the deal I'll make with you. I'll drive it to the glory of Christ. And in doing so, you don't even realize you never obey the speed limit, which would be glorifying to Christ. Or use your signals. And you're a California stopper, which means you don't physically stop. You roll through. I'm amazed at at how even those who have been saved and have a new nature, how we can manipulate our prayers to somehow, I'll tell you what, Lord, if I buy that other gun, that's going to glorify Christ. That just sounds stupid. What are you going to do with it? Shoot somebody if they mess with me? That's glorifying. I mean, think about the ways, the ways that we spin these things. We, we manipulate our prayers in such a way we honestly believe that, that somehow we're going to fool God. And if we're praying in, in ways that just in, in no way whatsoever, and I think many of our prayers 
are, are like this, unfortunately. And maybe we can, maybe through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to change today. But, but if our prayers, if the things that we're asking for, they just don't glorify the Son, they don't promote His work and will in people's lives, especially our own, we should not expect the Father to answer in the affirmative, should we? No. Now, I tell you, we can, we can justify our sin, rationalize our sin to, to such a degree that, that we actually get into these modes of prayer where we're trying to sell God on an idea that's going to somehow glorify His Son when He, in His infinite knowledge, knows that it won't. Well, Lord, I've just been praying to you about Sandy. I know she's not a believer, but I really want to date her. And I will glorify Christ to her and, and all that. And, oh, please, Father. Sandy runs off with Jimmy. Boy, you just, got, you just dodged a bullet. I mean, the things that we pray for just astonish. The things that I pray for astonish me. And we've got to get to this point of maturity where we understand what prayer is. Yes, it's communing with God and these things. It's, it's wonderful. It's how we interact with Him beside His Word. We pray in these things. But, man, we've got to start praying in such a way that brings, you know, the things that we're asking for bring glory to Christ. They, 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 they help to perpetuate His work on earth, which is gospel work. He's saving dead sinners which he doesn't have to do. Man, when we pray like that, our prayers, they're going to be answered in the affirmative. We are, now, we are now aligned with the will of the Father. The will of the Father is to glorify the Son, make the Son known, the will of the Holy Spirit, and the mission of the Holy Spirit is to do that. When the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, the whole Godhead is glorified, but the, the mission here is to make the gospel, the work of Christ, known in our hearts and in the hearts of others. And so that's, that's what we pray for. Well, does that mean that we don't ever pray for any of the other things? Well, no, you can, but pr pray any way you want, but just follow the guidelines of Scripture. Make sure that what you, what you desire, it's going to bring glory to Christ. It's going to promote His work and will in your life and in the lives of others. It's kind of narrow. But that's what we ought to be about. We're supposed to live narrow lives. We're on the narrow path. We're not supposed to be totally fixed on the things of this world that's perishing. Focus on the focus of the Father. And we pray like that. Last one by MacArthur. He says to pray in Jesus' name is, is not to use His name as a formula, ritualistically tacked on to the end of our, of our prayers to ensure its success. Rather, it is to pray for that which is consistent with Christ's person and will and to affirm one's complete dependence on him to supply every need with the goal that he would be glorified in the answer. I believe 
There's some wisdom in that statement. That's what it means. Are we praying to the Father in the name of Christ in, in a way that just reflects our utter and absolute dependency upon Him in all things? Not just to get you through a six-month trial, but everything in between. Closing. There is a extraordinary and wonderful principle in this passage. You know, most people can endure a trial if they can see an end. You know what I'm saying? Like if they're going through something difficult, but they know there's an end in sight, that helps them to get through it. Lack of hope is, is just devastating. Lack of hope is the, the ultimate agony of suffering since hope deferred does what? It makes the heart sick, Proverbs thirteen twelve. Believers can see the end, which is glorification. Right? We know the end. We know how things turn out for us. We know how things turn out in the world. Believers can see the end, which is glorification. And that glorification for us takes place when we breathe our last and are ushered into the presence of Christ or when Christ returns. And this gives us hope thus enabling us to endure trials and tribulations, doesn't it? Life, life is like child labor. It is fraught with pain. It is fraught with sorrow. But we know we have a glorious future because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we endure, so we press on toward the celestial city in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And it is so, so easy for us to get bogged down in the mire of our circumstances. It is. You know, I often say, when it rains, it pours. And right now, it's just pouring. Yeah, it's 70 out there. But for some reason, it's just pouring tribulation right now in my life. Just so much going on. And if, if it's not my own burdens and responsibilities and things I have to deal with, it, it, it's those of others. You know, we, we bear one another's burdens. And if you're, if you're a true lover of people, you're not going to have to fake empathy. You will be struck down in sorrow as they are. 
quite frankly, some believers just experience entire seasons of pain and sorrow. It's not a Wednesday. It's years. It's months. It's decades. And I want you to know that if you're a suffering saint, man, you got to know, you got to know, you got to know that the Word of God, the Scripture, you got to know that that Bible that you have on your phone or in your lap, leather bound, whatever it is, you got to know that that Bible, the very Word of God, the Holy Scripture, you got to know that it can bolster your hope, that it can literally recalibrate your perspective. It can. Man, if you're a suffering saint, go back and reread John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Reread over and over this text that we're looking at today. Focus on the promises of Christ. Those chapters have so many promises from him, I can't even list them all. Go to passages such as 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Man, that's a life verse. Make that your life verse. Go to one of my all-time favorite verses. Just, it, I just love it. I have to keep going back to it because sometimes I'm perplexed. I can't get my mind around how this scenario plays into my good. How God is going to use it for my good or the good of others. The good of the cause of his gospel. I, I can't get my mind around things at times. And, and then I just go right over to Romans 8, 28, which says God causes everything. And you know what I always add? The good, the bad, the ugly, to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Yes, this means that that what you are going through right now, God is going to take it and work it for your good. And sometimes he doesn't even wait until a lot of time has elapsed from the initial impact. Sometimes he's working it for your good in the middle of it. I've seen him bring people to saving faith in the midst of death. Even recently. Oh, Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, go to the Word of God to hear from the God of the Word. For He will surely lift and refresh your spirit and restore your hope. He will do it. He will do it. If you are a a suffering sinner, an unbeliever, you need to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation and hope in life. 
This is a realization that you need to come to right now. You need to realize that you've been living your life apart from Him for yourself and for your flesh. You need to realize that you are an enemy of the living God, that you have committed cosmic treason through your sin against Him, through your rebellion. You need to realize these things. And you need to repent of your unbelief, your rejection of Christ. And you need to put your faith, put your trust in Him alone for your salvation. You need to believe that He lived for your righteousness. He didn't live a perfect life to give to you some kind of morality that would get you into heaven. Morality gets no one into heaven. The only thing that gets people into heaven is the righteousness of Jesus. You need His perfect, flawless, pure righteousness. And the only way to obtain it is by and through faith. You need to, you need to believe that He died to pay your sins, that, that the value of His life was infinitely valuable and the only life that could even come close to paying the price for your sins and the sins of the world. Yes, it was the life of, of Jesus. It was the death of Jesus. Only the death of Jesus could atone for your sin once and for all because his life had the value that was required to do it. You need to believe that he was buried, that he was literally placed in a tomb as a physically dead man. And he went into that tomb to settle your account with God. You need to believe that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin. You see, when we're in Christ, sin is no longer our master. You need to believe that he was victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, who was, in a sense, our master. You need to realize and believe that he, 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 when he rose from the grave, he conquered sin, Satan, death. He conquered hell. You're not going to taste hell. The closest you'll get to it is this life, and sometimes it's pretty hellish. You need to believe that he overcame the world and its influence, its perversity, its unbelief, its rejection of God. You need to believe that he rose victorious over sin, Satan, death, hell, and the world for you, for you, for you. If you repent and believe in his person and work alone, you will be saved. You will be delivered from the wrath to come. You will have peace a transcending peace that goes beyond anything that I've ever experienced. How is it that in the midst of all of these things, me as a believer can have peace? And yet I have it. I can't explain it. And you will have this transcending peace. You will have the hope of heaven in your heart. And the Holy Spirit through His Inner presence and power will guide you into all the truth concerning Christ through the Word. 
He will sanctify you. He will make you a new man or a new woman in the likeness of Christ. And he will deliver you safely to the finish line by his might, by his power, by his presence. Christ said it, none who come to me will be lost. How is that possible? The Holy Spirit. Today, my dear friend, is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and believe. Now.